Well, grab your Bible or Bible device if you're an electronic Bible person. I personally am an electronic Bible lover. No shame in that. And, uh, but I have a pew Bible here, so if you grab a, a, a pew Bible, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11 today uh, as we look at the triumphal entry text, the, the Palm Sunday text. Um, it's in your pew Bible uh, on page 1015. Yeah, it's easy to find that way. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 is the, uh, is the text of Palm Sunday. And as, you know, as we've mentioned before, that this is signifying uh, the day that Jesus with his disciples in tow and all of those people who had become worshipers of, of Jesus, um, they're entering into Jerusalem. They're coming up uh, from other uh, regions of, of uh, you know, Galilee and then in Jericho and then they're in Bethany. So they're kind of working their way up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and there would have been other people on the road that were just coming in from all over the, the, the empire, coming back to Jerusalem um, for Passover. But in this case, it's Jesus with people who are worshiping him. And so let's, let's kick this off by, uh, we're going to be in a lot of scripture today. I said in first hour, it's going to be a whole lot of Bible today. So, uh, and if, it's, if I go long, it's the Bible's fault, because it's just, it's all, it's all going to be Bible. Um, but let's take a look at setting the scene for what happened on that day, the triumphal entry. So this is Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you why are you doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered Jesus as he had told them to, uh, just as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed after shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when they, when they did this, when they were shouting the Hosanna, it's very likely that, um, that what they were actually doing was chanting or singing Psalm 118, which, was, um, which I actually got to preach Psalm 118 this last July uh, as we discovered that Psalm 118 was the, the Hallel Psalm is what they called it, and it was where the, the hallelujah idea came from. And it told a, uh, painted a picture of the, the, the Davidic Messiah, so the, the son of David, the, the Messiah who was going to return to Israel and with all of his followers in tow was going to lead this procession, a festal procession, Psalm 118 says, right up to, into, the, into Zion and right up to the temple. And then this Davidic Messiah requests entry into the temple and the temple keepers welcome him. And, and it's this, this image of the Messiah returning, the Davidic Messiah. And so Israel would have had in their mind this image from Scripture. It was, it was uh, all over in the Old Testament. It's in uh, Zechariah 9. 9 has, a, has the, uh, the image of the Davidic king riding on a, on a, uh, on a donkey. And it's several places throughout the, the Psalms it mentions the son of David. This is who they would have expected the Messiah to be. Um, so, as I said, when they're shouting Hosanna, they're, they're actually quoting and singing Psalm 118. And here's an interesting thing about this, uh, uh, this passage with the triumphal entry. 
because we've all seen the biblical films, and you can kind of close your eyes and almost imagine what that looks like. It's always all attention is on Jesus. He's on a donkey. Everyone looks happy. You know, they're shouting Hosanna, and they're waving their palms in the air, palms symbolizing uh, power and authority and regal regalness, regality, whatever that word would be, uh, celebration of the king. Um, and all attention is on Jesus. But if, we, if you think about it, every person that was on that road that day, they had their own, their own story and their own narrative that had led up to that moment. Because they weren't just doing this willy-nilly. They, this was an act of, of worship. In fact, this moment right here signifies the, uh, a, a whole new birth of the, the actual the Church of Christ. So this is, in a way, is one of the first um, worship celebrations by Jesus' new church. And it's the first time that publicly all of his followers are saying, you are the Messiah. You are the Davidic Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And so when they shout Hosanna, when they take off their cloaks and lay them in front of Jesus as he goes by, it's their way of saying, I'm submitting myself to your lordship. I'm taking off this cloak that represents me and I'm, I'm submitting all of myself to you. So here we have this, this uh, setup of, of their, their narrative. Everybody that was there would have had their moment at some point where they decided that they were going to follow after Jesus. And as they had been, Jesus and his disciples had been coming up through um, Galilee and they'd been all through Judea and all these, you know, there's all these different stories of stopping at different towns and villages and everywhere he would, uh, he would perform these amazing miracles and he's healing people. He's bringing Lazarus back to life. Um, he, people are being transformed. He's, he's, uh, he's healing lepers in front of people's eyes, and they can't deny what they've seen, and so they're, they're following after him. They're hearing his call when he says, well, follow me. And they get into that, that procession. But here's, a, here's something I had never thought about until I looked at this text. Everybody that had seen a miracle take place Obviously, they're like, whoa, this guy is, you know, he, he must be, he's, he's, he's somebody special. But we never think about where their minds would have gone with, I want that. I want, I want a miracle done for me. I have stuff that I, that I need to bring that, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, I need you to be the Messiah of this one particular thing. Does that make, does that make sense? Like, and that could change every day. I know for me, today... Jesus, this is the thing I need you to be the Messiah of. Or we might have, you know, uh, particular issues or just um, scars in our life that they're always there. They always come up. And even after we say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, still every day it becomes a, Jesus, I need you to be this kind of Messiah to me, for me today. This is who I'm hoping that you'll be for me. Well, we're going to be looking a little bit more at this um, so today is the last, it's a six-week series. Today is the end of our Lenten series as we move into Holy Week. You know, next week is going to be Easter. And, um, but we've been in this, this Pursuit of Godliness series with the idea that we can make an effort to meet God where God wants to meet us and try to become more godly. And the whole idea is uh, that becoming, uh, if we had to put godliness in a definition, becoming more and more devoted to God and a life that's transformed and is more and more the us that God made us to be. And it comes from uh, 1 Timothy 4, 
where it says, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So if we had to put it in one sentence, what does it mean to pursue godliness? It's devoted, being devoted to God and a life that is well-pleasing to him. Now, an anti-definition, if you will, an alternative to this, that comes really close, it's kind of in the close but no cigar department, is having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Having a, so having the air of godliness, having, a, having all of the things that we associate with godliness and being right so close, right up to the point of, but not fully realizing that it's God's power that changes us. It's God's power that transforms us. And we can, we can move, we can try to, uh, you know, change our behaviors and, and, and whatnot, but ultimately there's nothing we can do. It's God's power that, that has to meet us. So what I'd like to do today, given that uh, in, this, in this particular passage where everyone on the road is going, is they're thinking, I, I want a one-on-one with Jesus. I want him to ask me what it is he can do for me. And we're going to look at three examples in the days and maybe even, possibly even the hours or the very day uh, that this triumphal procession took place that people who had come along with him got an audience with him and they had their chance to say, this is who I'm hoping that you will be for me. All right? So we're going to move kind of fast. Uh, We're going to flip back to just one page over to uh, Mark chapter 10 at verse 17. And this is a, uh, a familiar story that we've Surely I've heard several times, but we're going to look at it in just a slightly different light. So verse 17, it's the rich man that comes to Jesus. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know, all of the, all of the rules, all the commandments. Teacher, he says, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. And I wonder if he was really excited when he, hears, when he said that, like, awesome, I've done all those things. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. So we've heard this story before, and almost always it's framed in, in this uh, kind of a lesson that stands on its own, right? And in fact, if we were to read down even further, you, we, we see a teaching moment where Jesus is saying, right, you know, famously says, it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into heaven. And all those, all those types of uh, lessons that we would expect. And often this is cast in the financial you know, department of, of Bible verses or you know, um, rich and poor and whatnot. But I think that there's, more, there's, there's a whole other side to, uh, to this because if we look at the character of this man as it describes him, that he came to Jesus and falls on his knees before him. He says, good teacher, which is actually the only uh, example of that saying in the Bible. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What what must I do? I feel like there's something I need to do (laughs) 
which we can all relate to, right? Because it always feels like I should be doing better. You know, I should be, I should be reading my Bible. I should, I should, I should, I should do. But he's, he comes and he says, what should I do? And he's a wealthy man. He's, he has all of his needs met in his life, but there's still, there's still a disconnect. There's something that he's recognizing that there's a vacancy in there somewhere. And so he goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows life is going to end, and he wants something more from Jesus. So Jesus didn't actually ask him, what do you want me to do for you? But what do you think, what, what, if, if we just sort of brainstorm for a minute, what desire did this man have that he was bringing to Jesus that he was wanting to have that desire met? What would you say if you had to put it into one word? Got any ideas? Peace? Peace? Anything else? I'm going to suggest that his desire that he's looking for as he comes to Jesus is he's looking for assurance. He just wants assurance that everything is going to be okay. That in eternal life, that he's going to be with God. He wants to know that he's doing the right thing. Is there anything wrong with that at all? Absolutely not. He's just trying to figure things out. And this poor guy gets such a bad rap because, you know, we kind of look at this and uh, in the biblical films, you know, the rich guy walks off and he's not happy. And, you know, it's just as this caricature of, of, uh, of a person who just didn't see, you know, you just don't get it. But all it says was that his face fell and he, and he walked away going, I don't know what to do with that right now. And I think we should cut him a little slack and let this guy go through his process. We don't get to see the end of the story. In fact, I would love to hope that this man ends up in the procession with Jesus somehow. It's not in the Bible. We don't have no evidence of that, but he very well could be. He's come to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I just need assurance. And, and Jesus says, essentially, I see that you feel like you need to do something. He doesn't go into a lesson about how you can't do anything to inherit the kingdom of God. It's a free gift that is given to you, but since you, I see your desire that you need to do something, I'm going to give you something to do. He's, and he says to him, essentially, I want you to cast off your contingency plan. I want you to look at what it is that it is, is giving you a false sense of, of hope, a false sense of security, and and just pitch it. Find out what it's like to live with your back to the wall with no options. Put yourself in a place of faith, basically. He's looking for uh, this assurance, desire to be fulfilled. That's kind of who he's asking Jesus to be his Messiah in that moment. Jesus says, if you want that, cast off your contingency plan. Okay, let's look at another one really quick. So moving on, this is just uh, possibly even the same day. On, uh, we're going to look at verse 35. And this is where James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus. And James and John, of course, had been uh, with Pe- included with Peter, were Jesus' three main guys of the 12 apostles. And <clears throat> they were often, you know, being, uh, going off with, with Jesus for these special uh, hangouts, just the, the four of them. And so they were, they were their guys. But Peter's missing from this. But they come to him and say, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And we always look at that and think, well, that's kind of, a, <laughs> that's kind of an audacious 
go up to Jesus and do for me whatever we ask. And also, in the, in the two chapters leading up to Mark 10, uh, 8, and, 8 and 9, there are three separate occasions where Jesus is starting to pull the disciples aside and say, by the way, when we get to Jerusalem for the Passover, the Son of Man is going to have to give up his life. And they're a little slow to, to figure out what that means, but they're, I think they're starting to realize Jesus isn't always going to be here with us. But they come to him and they say, what do you, uh, uh, we want something, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? They skip over that line, but Jesus says, what do you want me to do? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You can drink the cup that, uh, can you drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism, baptism that I am baptized with. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I can, you can imagine that scene, right? What are you doing? What are you, what are you and when you try to imagine it, I like to just imagine if I was there in that moment. I could kind of, you could maybe see Peter's wheels turning, thinking like, but I, I, I kind of want that. <laughs> I want that for me. They become indignant with James and John, and Jesus calls them all together and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise their authority over them? It is not going to be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So these guys are grabbing at something. They're recognizing that Jesus is not always going to be here. And you can almost imagine this sort of panic mode set in. Like, what's gonna, what is going to happen? There are 12 of us. How is this going to work? We need a leader. We need someone to lead. You know, I'm just going to say it. I think I should be the leader. I think me and my brother should be the leader. You know, it's interesting also that in the John account of this, um, of this particular story, it's actually James and John's um, mother that brings her sons to Jesus saying, will you let my sons reign with you in glory. And it causes this big uproar and the, and the, the apostles are all are bickering with each other and Jesus kind of calls them together and says, you guys, just stop. <laughs> it's not about being great. In verse 30, 43, he gets right at, he like pokes right at what this issue is, is all about for them. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And again, we look at this story, it always gets cast in this, like, can you believe those guys? They didn't, they just still don't get it. What, what dumb, dumb dumbs they, they are. But these are guys that have been in some of the most intimate moments with Jesus. They've given up their lives to follow him. They've been with him and they've seen amazing things. They've given it all up and they're like, okay, Jesus, we've heard you say that we're supposed to ask. We have not because we ask not. Or ask and you will receive. 
knock and the door will be open to you. We, we hear all of that. And so they come boldly. They come boldly to, to the God that they know because they've been with him. They've, they've lived with him. It's normative for them to be able to come to, to Jesus and say, okay, I have something I'm going to ask you to do. And of course, what does Jesus, how does he reply? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? So as these guys are, are, are looking for Jesus to be their Messiah in this moment, and we'll try this experiment again, is there one word that you can think of? Is there something, a, a desire that, that is in them that they're hoping that he will fulfill? Shout it out if, you, if you've got any ideas. What's one word? Power. What was it? Importance. Those are perfect because they kind of match what I have right here. Of course, this is just my observation. There's not a one true answer. I think they're looking for significance. And not just looking for significance like, yeah, I want to be significant, but I think it comes from a good place. These guys have given up everything for for the cause of Jesus and his ministry, and they want to know that they're going to be that they're going to be great. Jesus recognizes that they want to be great, but they don't want to just be great. They're saying, I want to be godly great. I want to sit. I want to know that I'm right there with you in your kingdom. Is there anything wrong with that request at all? Of course not. So let's, again, let's give these guys a little bit of grace as well and maybe learn from them a little bit that if, we, if we're bold enough, if we, well, first, if we, live with, if we live with Jesus all the time, <laughs> I mean, that becomes normal, that we can come to Jesus and say, I have something I want you to do for me. And he might reply, well, what is it? So if they're looking for significance, their, their contingency plan, their what if, their if, if this doesn't work out for me, they're looking for possession of authority. They've got this figured out. They're like, okay, so if Jesus isn't here anymore, we need somebody to lead. There needs to always be a leader. There needs to be somebody in power. And Jesus sees right through all of that as he calls them in and says, okay, we live in the Roman Empire. These people lord their authority over us. They exercise their authority over us. And that is not how my church is going to work. And Jesus, in his infinite godly wisdom, says, I'm not going to put anyone in charge because if I put someone in charge now, then they're never going to realize that they can't do anything in their own power. It has to be done in my power. And the way that the world is going to see that is because it's done in power of servants. All right, I can keep going on that one. Let's jump into one more. So this is one more audience where people had an opportunity to say, Jesus, this is the kind of Messiah that I'm hoping that you will be. And in verse 46, we hear the story of blind Bartimaeus. Something that's interesting about this blind Bartimaeus uh, passage is he's the only person um, that encounters a miracle in the book of Mark that's actually called out by name, that we know his name was Bartimaeus, the, uh, what was it, the, the son, of, son of Timaeus. Um, and it's, uh, it's speculated that he, he likely became a well-known person in this very early church uh, because of what, is a, what we're about to read of what happened to him. So here's verse 46. It says, Then they came to Jericho. They had just come up. Jesus and the disciples had come up out of Galilee, Galilee, and they're now in Jericho, which is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. It's also where he collected Zacchaeus. Was it uh, the, the wee little man that climbed up in the tree? And... Um, so stuff happens in Jericho while he's there, right? So uh, 
They're there in Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then he rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Like, it's your turn. You're the person who gets the, gets the audience with Jesus. It says, Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus said. And you kind of get the feeling that as people are coming after, up to him one after the other for miracles, Jesus is like, all right, how about you? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. There is so much happening in here. And the, the, probably the most important one to recognize is this blind beggar becomes the first person to publicly declare that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, come on. <laughs> that is, is that not the gospel? He's a blind beggar, and he's the first one who actually shouts out, you're the son of David. And you know what? If you notice, he, he does that before he's healed. He does that before the miracle take, takes place. He cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Here's a guy who's so in touch with his poverty. And in his case, it's real poverty. He's blind. He can't work. He begs. And it's, you know, this uh, mentioning of his cloak, and it's not in the Bible, but I kind of imagine him begging in a public place, and he's got his, his cloak, his outer cloak just laid out. People throw their coins, and those are the alms that he lives off of, right? That's, those are his only possessions. And what he does when, when they say, he's calling you, he, he throws that aside, and he runs to Jesus. He runs to the Messiah, not just to somebody to see if he's going to be able to fix him, but he knows that he's the Messiah. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And then says, and at the very end, he followed Jesus on the road. And this leads us right back to where we began at the triumphal entry. So blind Bartimaeus proclaims that you are the Messiah. And for the first time, it's out there. And all through, going back to, to Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus starts to, you know, the disciples start to recognize that he is, he is the Christ. Peter says in a private um, conversation, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. But Jesus is like, let's keep that. Let's keep that on the down low. But he lets a blind beggar be the one who gets to proclaim that he's the Messiah. Mm. Right? And he gets into the procession. And this first worship, church, uh, worship worships, um, service of the church takes place on the road between uh, the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. And I like to imagine that Bartimaeus is like, I want to be the first to throw my cloak down 
Jesus, you, I'm submitted to you. I am submitted to your lordship. It's not in the Bible, but our imagination can take us to, to that point. He desired mercy. If he did have a contingency, it was all of his resources, his meager resources that he had. But he didn't need to be correct. He didn't need to be led to that point of, you've got this blind spot because he was so in touch with his desperation. Well, Jesus had desires as well, right? Um, he was tempted. Uh, if he was tempted in every way that we, that we are, um, I like to think of, like, what, what, are the, what are the things, what are the, not just that we think of temptation as all the bad stuff, what about all the good stuff that he would have been tempted uh, to have? And unlike us, with our contingency plans that don't really have any, they don't, they don't hold any water, Jesus was, was God, fully God and fully man. He had every ability to make his contingency plans work for him. But he doesn't. Instead, he faithfully submits himself, submits his will to that of the Father. And then out in the garden on Thursday, um, before he ends up going to the cross, he, uh, uh, he's, he's bearing the weight of the world. He's praying He's uh, feeling near death, and he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And God doesn't, we don't hear the part of the conversation, but I, I kind of imagine God the Father saying, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus says, I don't want to do this, but I'm choosing not my will, but your will. So I wish I could say that the, the, the lesson here is that we just need to submit our will, and we're done. <laughs> submit our will to God, but it's not that easy. So how can we uh, get to a place where we are faithfully submitted to the lordship of Jesus in the way that, that we've just described here? Well, I think that we can ask ourselves a few simple questions just to sort of get in touch with that. First of all, what is it that if Jesus was here, if Jesus is looking you in the eye, if Jesus sees you and loves you and says, what do you want me to do for you? What's your answer? And that will probably change from day to day, maybe even moment to moment. And I'm not talking like the Sunday school answer, like I know the correct answer, but what do you really desire? What's your desire? What desires are you feeding? And then, what are our contingencies? What are our what-if plans that say, I'm going to follow you, God, no matter what, unless it's that thing, unless you ask me to do this, or I can give up everything, but I don't think I can give up this. What are those, what are those contingency plans? And then, if we're, are we playing it safe, or are we finding a way to actually be people who live by faith? Because, you know, we had that, that definition of having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Having even, like, I think we sort of play little games that we can make ourselves feel like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm godly. I'm doing all the stuff I'm supposed to do. I'm reading my Bible. I go to church. I'm a good person. And I love God. And I do every, absolutely everything except for live in God's power. <laughs> That's, that's me. That's what I do. I don't know about you, but having a form of godliness but denying its power. But Jesus says, 
everything is possible for you, Lord. This is what I want, but ultimately I'm submitted to your will. Well, we've been, uh, for our, our series, we've every week had something that we're, we're saying, what if we tried something this week? What if we took a, um, a couple of pragmatic steps toward moving toward uh, this practice of godliness? What if we tried something this week? What I want to suggest is what I like to call a prayer of submission. And if you've ever heard of centering prayer, this is basically centering prayer, but I like to think of it as a prayer of submission. And I know that word is, can be kind of yucky for some of us, submission, like submit. Um, and, there, and some of us have scars related to that, but all it really means is, is what Jesus just did where he said, God, I want this, but I choose what you, what you have for me. So uh, this comes from Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do immeasurably more than anything that we could ask or even imagine. So if God is able to do more than we could even think to ask for, why would we not just default to that and let God do that for us? Let God be that, be that answer for us. So here's how a prayer of submission works. I'll just get super practical right here. So it's going to take about seven minutes. You might want to get an app, uh, a meditation app on your phone or whatever. You have one minute to get ready. You have five minutes of, of prayer time and one minute coming out of that. So, and then what you do first, though, is you find a quiet place. Like, all I need is seven minutes. And by the way, if you're ever feeling frenetic or just things are out of control, chicken with your head cut off, this is a, such a great way to just... Um, I've heard the, the phrase, calm the, the tree of wild monkeys that's in our minds. Yeah, you guys can relate to that, right? Because you get quiet and stuff, it's still just the, the plates are still spinning. So find a quiet place with no distractions. Just take one minute, set your timer, go, and it'll have one minute just to get settled, maybe even physically, like if there's any tension in your body, just, you know, get comfortable. And then what I usually do is I just kind of, okay, God, Help me get settled. And then just be still and welcome God's presence. And this is all in the first minute, so it goes by pretty fast. And imagine Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? And so that we can sort of present that to God. God, right now, this is what's going on. Like for, for me this morning, I, I, I just prayed, I just want to do a good job today. Or you might say, I mean, you might be in one of those moments where you're like, right now I want this thing that I know is not part of, your, part of your plan for me or for anybody, but I'm being honest, that's what I want. And then just leave that there. Silence your mind. Stop trying to figure stuff out with, sometimes we try to figure stuff out verbally with our prayers, right? Which is great. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. You know, trying to find the, the words to, these are all the things that I need to do, but this is a, this is a, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to do that because I'm going to choose God to have you do immeasurably more than anything that I could ask for. So just stop striving and for five minutes, just be still in the presence of God, knowing that what God wants, what God wills for us, what God chooses for us, he will give, he will give us that in that moment. And just sit in a place of trust for five minutes. And what will happen is, after about 13 seconds, <laughs> your mind will start to drift. And then what I like to do is I just think, no, Lord, Lord, I'm focusing on you. 
And then my mind will start to drift again. Oh, I got to remember to do that thing. And I need to water the plants. And I've got some light. Oh, mm-mm. Lord. And just, it, it literally means to repent. No, I'm, 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 not, I'm not striving right now. Just sitting here with you. Just trusting you. I'm just submitting my will to yours. It's more than meditation. It's a, actually a way that we can rehearse our faith. I mean, and it's so safe and easy to rehearse your faith. You're, you're all alone with God. It's such an intimate time. Um, it's, this has really rocked my world for the last couple of years. Um, and it's such a great way to practice your faith that when your mind starts to drift, when you try to figure things out, when you, you know what I mean? No. I'm, I'm believing and trusting God that it's your presence that's going to transform me. And just sit back and watch it transform you. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And it's according to his power. We have to keep hearing that over and over again. It's according to God's power, not ours. And then over time, maybe we can be transformed to the point where when we're with God in those moments and God says, what do you want me to do for you? Instead of saying, what I desire is this thing I'm not supposed to have, maybe we might be transformed to a point where we can honestly, that our first choice would be, God, I just want what your will is. I'm asking you for that. I'm asking you to do that. I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to stop. 